There's a link between all the ideas. Three major ideas in chapter nine will be the death penalty, the rainbow, and Noah's fall and how his sons deal with that. And they all kind of interconnect with the rainbow kind of circling over the whole thing. So, but before we go there, I, I would be remiss if we don't bring up the uh, events that took place in Paris and uh, the terrible tragedy that has occurred once again. I have come up to the pulpit on more occasions than I'd like to count in the wake of disasters and school shootings and the like. I think the recent count, uh, and it seems to be an ISIS-initiated uh, attack, terrorist attack in Paris, is 129 dead, over 300 wounded, and in hospitals, some of them fighting for their lives right now. Uh, it is very difficult to make sense of tragedies like this and what motivates people to do what they do and why they feel like going and just killing people is what they should be doing. But it's happened again, and here we are. And when we are in situations like this, it's hard to even know what to do. It's hard to know, Lord, am I supposed to give money to something or what do I do? And sometimes we can even underestimate the power of our prayers, but there's a few things that I just want to pray for this morning. One, I want to pray that the church will be a strong light in Paris. There are Christians there. There are churches there. And that the church will be able to shine the gospel even in the wake of something so horrible and so terrible. That they will be strong, that they will be a light, that they will bring the compassion and the healing balm of the gospel. That's number one. So I also want to pray for healing for these families. I want to pray that if you join me in prayer, that the Lord would take what was intended for evil and exploit it for his good purposes. Would you bow with me, Father? We do lift up the church in Paris that she will be a shining light in the midst of a dark time where men came in dressed in black and in the name of their God uh, did this terrible deed. And I pray that you would put a stop to what ISIS has been doing I pray you would give wisdom to the leaders of France and our own country and other countries to know what to do and how to do it and how to deal with this threat. It's a real threat. Real blood is being shed. Christian blood all over the world is being shed. And we ask that you would put a hedge about your people. We ask that when things do happen, that you allow for whatever your reasons are, that you'll turn it to good for your divine purposes. And you'll even save those whose hearts and eyes are darkened to the truth. And then, Lord, we wanna lift our hearts in prayer to the families, those who have to pick up the pieces and try to make sense of a tragedy like this and why their loved one was lost or hanging on to life. And we're just gonna pray that your healing and your grace would permeate every life, every situation, and that every person who doesn't know you would turn to you, Lord and find hope and life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we move into Genesis 9, we will look at some things that are related to these subjects, and we will look at some tough truth, but we pray that your truth would guide our lives and that you would be glorified. You prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And we believe that, Lord. We believe our response to your truth matters. And so have your way among us. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us and a heart to follow your path. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. Genesis chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah. The message is starting over, starting over. Genesis chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now as Genesis nine sets up, Noah is get, getting off the ark, the world has been washed by the wrath of God, the flood, a universal flood that took out everybody save those who were on the ark. And God was true to his word and Noah prepared the ark in faith. And now as he's getting off, the first thing that he does, we saw in chapter eight, verse 20, is that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal, every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. 
Verses 1 through 17 pick up that theme of 8, 20 through 22 and give us the detail of how God confirms that promise that he's not going to bring a worldwide flood again. He's never going to do that again. In the middle of the chapter, we will look at the symbol of that promise, which is the rainbow. God says the bow in the sky will be the guarantee that I will not do this again. But I want you to notice at the end of chapter eight that even though the, the flood has washed clean the earth and many of the, uh, all the people except for eight, still the, the problem is not that man has been washed away or judged. The problem is the heart. The intent of man's heart, look at the middle of 21 in chapter eight, is evil from his youth. That's the problem. So that even in the post-flood world, things became evil again. And even at the end of this chapter, we're going to watch Noah fall. Noah's going to make a huge mistake. The man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the man who was more righteous than any other person on the planet, he's going to make a big blunder in his own life. And it tells us that even though things can be washed away on the outside, the issue is the inside. And we've touched on this many times, but of all the discussions that will take place in the world in the wake of any tragedy, any difficulty, any inexplicable tragedy, we always have to go back to the heart. That's what the Bible says the problem is. The problem is the heart. And God has dealt with that problem. He promises that if you come into a new covenant relationship with him, he'll give you a new heart. He'll make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things will be passed away. Behold, all things will become new. And so that is the picture of salvation. And God blessed Noah, verse one, chapter nine, and his sons. And Noah becomes, and his sons become almost like a second Adam, where Adam came upon the newly formed world and God blessed him, blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply. Well, now in chapter nine, in the new world, in the sunlight of the new world, with all this newness before him, everything cleansed away, now Noah and his family become like a second Adam and Eve. And God mirrors what he said in chapter one uh, to, Noah, uh, to Adam and Eve. He says now to Noah and his sons, this is reminiscent, this will have a familiar ring. He says, be, free, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've gone from eight people thousands of years ago. Some people say the flood was something like 4,000 plus years ago. Some people say no less than 10. But whatever the chronology is, we've gone from eight people to now almost what? Eight billion people on the planet. So indeed, there is a fruitfulness. The world has multiplied. There are people everywhere. And Noah, after he came through the flood, the first thing he did was worshiped. He built an altar, and there was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And that reminds us that when we go through our trials, it's always good to worship. God will see us through. And Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Your life can be the same. Your life can be a sweet savor to heaven if you do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Number 624 says, the Lord bless you and keep you. God bless them. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. When you're blessed by God, the Hebrew word means his hand is covering you. The hand of the Lord covering you, giving you light, giving you strength. Blessing in the biblical framework is not just about material things. You know, people have stolen that word these days, and everybody's talking about being blessed. And when somebody says, I'm blessed, most times that means I've gotten ahead, or I'm doing good, or things are going well. But that's not what the Bible means. That's not exclusively what it means. To be blessed is to be in a relationship with God. It's to be covered by his almighty power. It's to say, underneath us are the everlasting arms. That's what it means to be blessed. It's to know God. There's no blessing truly outside of God. And the Lord blessed them. He wanted to bless this new venture that they would uh, go into. And he says in verse two, chapter nine, the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth. This is different now because the animals in the original creation, man had dominion, Adam named the animals, but now there's gonna be a fear in the animal kingdom. The fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth, verse two, and every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Here's dominion. The second Adam, if you will, has dominion. Every moving thing that is alive, this is different, shall be food for you. That's probably why the animals are afraid of us, by the way. 
I give all to you as I gave the green plant. The evidence seems to be that men and women were vegetarians before the flood. But after the flood, now animals become meat. Man has the ability now to eat the animals. We don't know for sure why the change at this point. It could be that there's a scarcity in the food supply, but we don't know for sure. But we do know something has changed now. Cattle are not mentioned in verse two, or some would argue domesticated animals are not afraid of us per se. My dog likes to be right next to me. Anybody got that same kind of animal at home? However, for the most part, the animal kingdom is afraid of man. You ask the question, why? Why would a bear run from us, especially if we don't have a weapon? Well, there's a terror that's been put into the heart of the animal kingdom by God to be fearful of men. And so God says, they're going to fear you. There's going to be a terror in their hearts. And everything that's on, uh, everything alive shall be food for you. Every moving thing I give all to you as I gave the green plant now you will have this for your diet. It's, uh, it's amazing uh, when children realize that hamburgers are actually animals. Have any of you gone through this with your children or grandchildren? You try to explain to them, yeah, that's, that's a cow, sweetheart. What? <laughs> they can't imagine that that's what's been happening. Yes, you've, you've eaten several of them uh, over the last couple of years. We were in some meetings years ago, and we were talking about our favorite Bible verses among a group of leaders and pastors, and some of them were saying John 3.16, and some were saying Romans 1.16, and we had this youth pastor, and you could tell he liked to eat by his size, and we asked him, what's your favorite Bible verse? And he says, oh, it's in John 21 when Jesus said, come, let us have breakfast. That's my favorite Bible verse, and I believe, and he went on, and I believe that the greatest creation of Almighty God is the cow. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Only, there's a prohibition, look at verse four, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You cannot eat an animal the way another animal might eat an animal. If you ever watch those shows where the animals get each other, not pretty. It's not to be that way. You folks who order your steak rare, stop it. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think that you're breaking God's law, but, but I don't like to look at it personally. But anyway, <laughs> you shall not eat flesh with the life that is its blood. The word blood is dom, D-A-W-M in English. It literally means the door of water. And some Hebrew words have the same meaning as they sound. So if you say dom, dom, has the idea of blood flowing through your veins, that's the Hebrew word for blood. Blood takes on great significance in the Bible because it has to do with atonement and life. In fact, life is in the blood. The idea that the blood must be drained is the beginnings of the Levitical system of the diet for the Jew. They have kosher laws. And in kosher laws, the blood must be drained or extracted from the body. And so um, this does happen in you know, pretty much all meats, but here's the idea. There was a belief that blood constituted life essence in the ancient world. In fact, some military conquerors would kill their victims and drink their blood. In the ancient world, the cults, the pagan cults took on this practice, and they felt like if they ingested blood of a victim, they were taking on additional uh, life force for them. This still, by the way, appears in some weird cults and the occult where people do participate in drinking blood. And they think somehow that that's gonna enhance their life. Now, we do know that in, if someone's sick, sometimes there's a blood transfusion. I will say this to our Jehovah's Witnesses friends who have withheld blood transfusions on the basis of biblical texts misinterpreted. That's not what God is saying. A life-giving transfusion is not the same as drinking blood in some ritual thing where you think it's gonna give you more power. That's not the same thing. So to withhold a blood transfusion from someone who needs it desperately is a confusion of the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. We should do everything we can to help someone uh, stay alive or heal. 
But Leviticus 17, 13 and Deuteronomy 12, 24, you might want to write this down for your notes. Leviticus 17, 13 and Deuteronomy 12, 24 form the basis of the Jewish dietary laws. Ritually speaking, says one author, the draining of the blood before eating the meat was a way of returning the life force of the animal to God who gave it life. Life is in the blood, and disregard for life is an affront to the life giver. The divine prohibition against eating blood also prepared humanity to appreciate the use of blood in sacrifice, because belonging to God, it can be seen as his atoning gift to sinners not theirs to him. And it prepares us for the Messiah whose blood uh, cleanses us from what? All sin. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9 says, there is no forgiveness of sins. And some people look at the Bible and they wonder, what's the stuff about blood and what's the sacrificial system? It seems like almost, to be blunt, a bloody mess. You look at the holidays and the Passover and there's blood, blood everywhere. What's going on? Because God says that life is so serious and so sacred that blood must be shed to atone for sins. Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but Jesus Christ came and shed his holy blood and sprinkled us from a defiled conscience and washed us clean by his blood so that by his one sacrifice for all time, your sins are not only covered, they're washed away in Christ. It's his life for yours. That's what the atonement means. Jesus Christ died so you might live. He shed his blood. His life was given for you. And he says at the Passover meal, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, We think about the Bible and we think about the story of Cain and Abel. The first mention of the spilling of blood is there. And God says to Cain, I hear the voice of your brother's blood crying to me from the ground. God takes it seriously when blood is shed. And it was hard to look at, but if you saw some of those pictures in Paris and you saw blood on the ground of victims... There will be an accounting for blood that is shed. In fact, the book of Ezekiel says a land that sheds innocent blood is polluted by that blood. I know it's hard to take, folks, but this is what the Bible teaches. There must be a cleansing. That's part of the reason the flood came is because the world was filled with violence. People were killing each other indiscriminately, thinking that life had no value. And you know a culture is in trouble when it loses the sacredness of life. We believe that life, the sanctity of life, that has the the idea of sacredness, starts from conception to natural death. That's in our mission statement. That is what we believe because that's what the Bible teaches. And so, life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 10 and 11, write it down for your notes, says, any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, Leviticus 17, 10 and 11. Who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so Jesus Christ poured out his life so that you might have life. He let his life drain away, if you will, that we might experience new life in Christ. Verse five, Genesis nine says, surely I will require, this is a judicial term, I will demand an accounting NIV, your lifeblood from every, every beast, I will require it from every man, from every man's brother. I will require the life, require the life of man an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Here's the bottom line. God says, if an animal kills a man or a man kills a man, their blood will be shed. Now, I want to make a distinction here because this is where the Bible is going. The Bible makes a distinction between killing and murder. Killing happens in wars, and sometimes God ordained the killing of certain people groups. Killing happens in capital punishment. And the next verse is going to tell us that capital punishment is a divine sanction by God, which I don't believe has ended. But that word has the idea of an intentional premeditated murder. 
Not of someone who did something on accident. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you accidentally killed somebody, there were cities of refuge that were set up. And you could go to that city of refuge and find refuge in that city and the manslayer or the avenger of blood who was usually a relative in that family of the person that you killed could not kill you in that city of refuge. And what's interesting is you could leave that city, if you left that city of refuge and you got killed, it was on you. But you could leave that city of refuge at the death of the high priest. Whoever the high priest was at the time, the moment he died, you were able to leave that city of refuge and the man, the avenger of blood, could not kill you. You were free at the death of the high priest. And all through the book of Hebrews, this is what the Bible teaches, that when the high priest Jesus died, we have fled for refuge to him. God is no longer counting our sins against us because they are atoned for in the blood of Jesus. As long as you have ran, run to him for refuge, then you're not going to be exposed to God's judgment. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I'll tell you this, as we go through this text, there's some tough things here, but I'll tell you, this man speaking to you right now, I have made a ton of mistakes. I have sinned against God. And if it weren't for the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, I'd be in deep trouble. But I fled for refuge to him. I fled to find covering and cleansing in his blood. But God says this is the principle. Exodus 21, 28 says it, and if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. But if the ox was in the habit of goring people and the owner doesn't tie up his ox and the ox gores several people, and this is a pattern, the ox dies and the owner of the ox is killed as well. How do you like that? So tie up your dog, that's all I'm saying. Anyway. <laughs> It says, whoever, Genesis 9, 6, sheds man's blood, by man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Here's the argument. Here's the argument for capital punishment. It's a hard truth, but look at it. The reason that man will have his blood shed for murdering someone is because mankind is made in the image of God. In the image of God, he made man. Capital punishment is not diminishing life, it is elevating life. The reason that capital punishment exists is because God values the life of man above animals and everything else. The one creature made in God's image is us, mankind. So God says if someone murders a person, capital punishment is what should occur. Now people say, however, the judicial system is not always trustworthy. What about the mistakes? What about someone wrongfully charged? Certainly those things exist. Now, they, they've been somewhat diminished by DNA evidence and, and the system has gotten better, but I'm sure that at some point somebody may have been executed wrongly. It's quite possible. But one thing you do in logic, folks, and I just want to teach you just a, a bit of logic for a second, is you never argue from the exception. Never. You don't say, well, this could happen, so therefore we'll, we'll disobey God's command because of the exception. You never argue from the exception. You argue from the law. We abhor exceptions. We, we never want someone to be wrongly killed or executed. Certainly not. We should do everything that we can in the judicial system to guard against that. But it doesn't change the fact that this is a divine sanction. This is what God has said. In fact, I would argue that the idea of capital punishment keeps people from doing dumb things. It's one thing if you know you're gonna be in a cell. It's another thing if you know that they'll kill you if you kill somebody else. It does preclude some crime. And it is because man is made in God's image that the death penalty exists. Romans 13.4 carries this idea. It says, it, the government, Romans 13, 4, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It, government, is a minister of God, an avenger, the same as an avenger of blood in the Old Testament, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. If we did not have these laws, it would be anarchy, you guys. 
And we've got it right now. The world's falling apart around us, largely because we're losing our way with absolute truth. Ravi Zacharias was preaching this morning. He said he and his wife had a chance to go into the hall of justice uh, that was, where the Nuremberg trials were held. There they put the Nazi war criminals on trial for the dastardly things that they had done to mankind. Not only six million Jews, but Christians and others were killed in the Nazi death camps. And he said it was interesting to walk into the hall of justice because there were two things there that grabbed his eye. One was the Ten Commandments. And one was the picture of the fall of Adam and Eve and the temptation in the garden. Man is always tempted to do wrong, but the Ten Commandments stand forever. You shall not murder. And the Nazis who were on trial said, we were just following the laws of our land. We were just following Nazi law. Who says it was wrong? And the Ten Commandments being in that hall of justice said, there's a higher law than Nazi law. And I don't care what laws come down the pike of any society, man can do what he wants to shake his fist at God. He can claim that there was just the law of the land, but I'll tell you what, on the day of judgment, thou shall not murder will stand. And that's why we run to refuge to Jesus Christ. We are not to be life, uh, Noah and his sons are not to be life takers, but life producers to multiply And as for you, look at verse seven, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, now behold, here's the second idea in the text. Here's the covenant. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant. It's God doing it, my covenant with you with your descendants after you. This follows in the generations to come. The word covenant is barit. It means to cut. It's a compact. It literally means the son of the cross or the cross of my son. It points to Jesus, the covenant. God's making it with verse 10, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall uh, never again be cut off by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. I just want to comment here. If the flood was a localized flood, then God lied. Because there have been floods since the time of Noah and some life has been lost in floods since the time of Noah. But there's never been a worldwide universal flood This verse would have no meaning unless the flood was universal, unless it truly did cover all the mountain peaks of the world. And God says, that's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna destroy the world again with the flood, and I'm making a compact. I'm making a covenant. It's going to be a sign to you. It's with you and with all the animals. How do animals respond to a covenant? Okay, I mean, how does an animal? That was a little attempt at Scooby-Doo there. Anyway, I mean, we do know uh, in some places where uh, covenants were made, for example, Jonah goes through Nineveh and he says 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And from the king and even to the animals had sackcloth on. I don't know that they were, they knew what was going on. Sorry, God, (laughs) I don't know. but, But there was repentance from the top down, including animals. And God includes animals now because animals were destroyed in the flood. And here's the point. Uh, Many say that what God's covenant in verses one through 17 are are a response to Noah's offering. But I'm not sure that it is. I I don't know that if Noah would have done something different with an offering, God still wouldn't have made the covenant. My point is this, the covenant's from God. It's his covenant, it's his promise. He's not gonna destroy the world again with a flood. Wouldn't you be thinking about that the next time it rained if you were Noah and his sons? You're hanging out in your tent. It starts to rain a little. Uh Uh-oh. Is it gonna stop? Are the fountains of the deep gonna be opened up again? Are the floodgates gonna open from heaven? I escaped the first one, but am I gonna escape this one? Every time it rained, they had to be thinking about that. But God did what? He put the rainbow in the sky, which has been robbed from its original meeting. How many people look at a rainbow in the sky today and think of God's covenant? But that's what it's for. That's what it's for. 
And God said, this is, verse 12, the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Notice, for all successive or perpetual generations. This goes on and on. I set my bow, the Hebrew word is cassette. You could spell it Q-E-S-E-T. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. This is the sign, it's a bow. Cassette in Hebrew can mean a bow like a bow and arrow or it can mean a rainbow. It's the same Hebrew word. Which way do we take this? Some scholars say it's some sort of bow in the sky, but what would a bow in the sky mean? A bow is, is for fighting and destruction. The rainbow is a sign of what? Peace. Could it mean that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death and that's the image of the bow and somehow we're to see the bow even in the multicolored rainbow? We see it half when we're looking at it from the earth. Is that possible? It certainly could be. But this is the sign, it's, it's the oat, it's, the, it's that which ties to uh, words that I've given you in the past that have to do with the covenant that God lays out, a promise that he makes. It's the sign of the covenant and it is, in my view, the rainbow. The rainbow appears over and over and over again. It's the multicolored reality of God's goodness and grace. In fact, if you look at a rainbow from up above in a helicopter or plane, it's not a half circle, it's a full circle. Would you guys put up the photo? This is a photo, if we've got it, from the NASA website. It was taken uh, from a helicopter flying over Australia. And what they tell us is that when we see a rainbow from down on the planet, we see it as a half circle. But every rainbow from up above is actually a full circle. And in the scriptures, the rainbow is always tied to the throne of God and the glory of God. It's seen in Ezekiel 1, you might want to write this down, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, and Revelation 10, all incorporate a rainbow with the glory of God and even tie it to the judgment of God. But the rainbow is a sign, it's a covenant that God makes to all future generations so that every time we look, we are reminded was this the first rainbow ever seen? Perhaps it was. Henry Morris comments. He says, before the flood, the upper air contained only an invisible water canopy or water vapor. Therefore, no rainbow was possible. With the new hydrological cycle following the flood, the former vapor canopy is gone. And it is physically impossible now for enough water ever to be raised into the atmosphere to cause a universal flood. When a storm has done its worst and the clouds are finally exhausted of most of their water, then there always appears a rainbow. And so God would have us remember again his promise after the great flood. The rainbow is the assurance that despite clouds in the sky and rain, there will never again be a universal flood. It is between God and the world, between God and us. And when you go through your storms in life, you can't have a rainbow without a storm. And you can't see the multifaceted, multicolored grace of God without first going through a storm. We don't like the storms. I don't like the storms. But the rainbow appears. And it is God saying, from eternity to, to eternity, think of the circle. Uh, it, it has the idea of the beginning and the end, the word sign, oat, the beginning and the end. The leader nailed to the cross. I've shown you that in the past with the Hebrew word oat for sign. And the rainbow ties beautifully with it. From everlasting to everlasting, God is true to his promises. The world will not be destroyed again with water, but you all know the world is going to experience the fire of judgment. And it shall come about, look at 14, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. God reminds us that it's a phenomenon that's from him. People say, well, a rainbow is just a natural phenomenon. You Christians pouring that meaning into it is wrong. Uh, all natural phenomenons from God. Either way, you go back to God. Natural phenomenon, if you believe that God made everything, is from God. Thus the rain, it's just water molecules with sun shining through it. Yeah, who made the water molecules in the sun? God, hello. Anyway, 
15. <laughs> and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And I'm sure every time it rained, <laughs> Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, looked for the rainbow. Is it there? <laughs> okay, whew, cool, cool. When the bow is in the cloud 16, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God. God says, I'm gonna look upon it. It's for me and for you and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth, 17. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. When I look upon the blood, when God was gonna pass over Egypt, he said, put the blood on the doorpost and lentil. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Did God know where, which Jewish house was which? All the Jews were living in Goshen. He knew where the Jews were. But he said, when I see the blood, and we need to know that the rainbow ultimately takes its fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you, if he sees you through the blood, through the cross, you are saved. And never again will judgment come into your life. This is the everlasting promise of Almighty God. Now we've got the sections break down with capital punishment, the covenant encircling both these sections. And now we're gonna look at Noah's fall. Remember Noah is a second type of Adam. We're coming to a close. We'll deal with this quickly. But uh, Adam had a fall. It involved forbidden fruit. Noah had a fall. It involved fruit as well, fermented. Look at verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. By the way, you come from one of these boys. We'll talk about that in Genesis 10. Then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. It's planted a vineyard. It's probably decades after he's gotten off the ark now. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, after we, you know, we get off the ark of the flood, if you want our own lives, we start over again. We find God's blessing and promises. Things begin to multiply in our lives, and it's cool. And then we can get laxed, can't we? We can get a little bit too comfortable. Hey, I've got this Christian thing down. And Noah planted a vineyard, and he, he started drinking. And some people say, the reason Noah got drunk is he didn't understand fermentation. That's, that's the problem. I remember at a church service years ago at a church in Orange, and it was the 8 a.m. service, and everybody's kind of half awake, and the, the juice for communion had turned slightly. And I remember drinking the juice and going, wow, that's, that's something first thing in the morning at a service. And people say, well, that's why I know. I think Noah pretty much knew the fermentation process. I think Noah just had a little too much wine. Now, there's a debate in the church about drinking of wine and beer. In some churches, in other countries, if you drink coffee, they think you've lost your way, but they'll have a beer with you after church. <laughs> and there's some people, you know, there's certain movements in, in the Christian world, and there's debates, and people take different positions, but here's what the Bible emphatically says. Don't get drunk. Don't do it. Because when you get drunk, you lose inhibitions and you lose your mind. That's basically what happens. You lose your senses and you do things and you uncover things that you wouldn't have done had you not had that alcohol. It exposes you to the, the devil getting in there. We know Paul said, look, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. I will not be mastered by anything. I've got one master. Now, there's freedom in Jesus Christ, and we're not, I'm not going to belabor the point, but the point is this. You're not to stumble somebody with the drinking of alcohol, and you're not to get drunk. Ephesians 5.18 is a command. Don't get drunk with wine. I met a guy outside of a Carl's Jr. I began to witness to him. He was obviously living on the streets, and he told me that you know he was a little intoxicated when we were talking. By the way, it's very difficult to witness to a drunk person. I recommend not trying it, although they'll get spiritual with you. Oh, yeah, bro, me and God, yeah. They'll get philosophical with you. I would recommend you not have that conversation. Say, I'll call you back when you're sober. And so he was telling me, hey, Jesus drank wine, man. 
Yeah, so? The Bible teaches in 1 Timothy 3 that an elder, First Timothy 3, 3 addresses an elder, verse 8, a deacon, Titus 2, 3, godly women, they're not to be addicted to much wine. You're not to be addicted to wine. Proverbs 20 says, if you linger long over wine and you get intoxicated by it and you drink too much of it, later in Proverbs it says, you'll feel like you're on a ship. Anybody? The Bible's true to life, man. And things are a little... <laughs> yeah. Three, they say, what, three sheets to the wind? That, that kind of thing? Things are spinning? The Bible talks about that. It says don't do it. Because you will make mistakes, and the Bible uh, makes it clear, and this is what we've grabbed on it to as a society, when we're drinking too much wine, we are literally called under the influence. Whose influence do you want to be under? I will tell you right now, we have an epidemic of drugs in our land, an epidemic of alcohol abuse in our land. We have people in the church that are genuinely struggling with it, people who have known the Lord or do know the Lord and are wrestling with not going back to that lifestyle. And I remember when I told you early on in this message that I'm the chief of sinners, I've made all these mistakes. I'm not preaching down to you, but I'm saying to you, there's a change of life that happens in Christ. You don't need that anymore. People go to that for medicine for their soul. They go to that to try to escape life and you just give yourself more problems. And Noah got laxed and he got drunk. And Ham, 22, the father of Canaan, sounds like he's probably already born in here, saw, the Hebrew word means he looked intently, he gazed at the nakedness of his father. And he told, literally the Hebrew could be, he told with delight his brothers outside. Ham wanders into the tent the evidence seems to be that they're living in separate residences or separate tents. Time's gone by, children have been born, and dad has gotten drunk, and somehow he's exposed himself in the tent, and Ham comes walking in. And Ham doesn't just look. The Hebrew has the idea of he gazed at his dad. Some scholars even believe that there was some weird, lustful thoughts going on with Ham, which I won't get into. But they, they think that there's some evidence that it was more than just a look. But he gazed at him, and the idea is he gazed with, with too much, too long. And then he went outside. And here's the lesson. We're gonna close with, a, with what I think is a very powerful life lesson. When we see somebody exposed, somebody's made a mistake inside the tent. Let's take the tent as the church. We ought not be quick to, to go outside and tell other people about their faults. When people are exposed for whatever reason, we shouldn't be going to other brothers and saying, hey, the old man's drunk in there and exposed. <laughs> no. Do you know they've built entire television programs based upon exposing people? And people take great delight in it. Next on this channel, watch the fall and failure of person X. Whoa. We go through the grocery line. Look how this person has fallen and made a mess of their life. You know, I just think I just finger through that. And, whoa. And we go and we share it with other people. It's like we take some sort of weird pleasure in the failure of others. And people outside the tent, when they hear you talking about other Christians inside the tent, you think they want to come here? All those Christians do is bag on one another. I can get that in the world. I can watch the afternoon television and get that while people are going, woo, woo, woo. Yeah, tell us more dirt. Really? That's what Ham did. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And Canaan was the land that Israel took from the Canaanites. And those people were destroyed. The lineage wasn't positive, folks. And Ham had a son. And his son was obviously influenced by this. And he went outside and he told his brothers, notice 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, 23, laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward. They wouldn't even look and they covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. They wouldn't even look. They didn't want that in their minds. They didn't want to dishonor their father. So they took a garment, they walked backwards and they covered 
the nakedness of their father because love covers how many? A multitude of sins. You see, when someone wants to share dirt with you about somebody else, hey, did you know? Usually we couch it as we want to pray for somebody in the Christian church, right? We need to really pray for old so-and-so. Why? What happened? Well, the other night, drunk in the tent. Sad. You see, we should not even listen to that. And there's no evidence here of a verbal rebuke by the brothers. They didn't need to say anything. Their actions said it all. We'll cover him. We're not going to talk about this. In fact, I don't even want that image in my head. And we should be saying the same thing when other people want to gossip about Christians. It's one thing to legitimately be praying for somebody. Don't get me wrong. I think people can make too much of this. But it's another thing to say, you know what? I'm going to find a way to cover this instead of exposing it. That's what Jesus did for us. Should we do any less? I know it's hard to take. We've all made the mistakes. But I want to tell you something about life, and I hope you'll hold on to this one. If you want to find something wrong with individuals, I'll guarantee you'll find it. If you want to nitpick for weaknesses, if you want to look for specks in your brother's eye, you will find them. But Jesus said, be careful. First, pull the telephone pole out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly. Jesus does not say you can't judge somebody, but he says, first, you better get the beam out of your own eye. Or other, when you're trying to inspect the, uh, the speck in your brother's eye, poof, you're going to be hitting people in the head. You know what I'm saying? You see, this is the truth of what differentiates, hopefully, Christians from other people, is we don't engage in that stuff. And when we do, hopefully, we quickly try to remedy it. And when Noah awoke from his wine, 24, maybe his drunken stupor, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. We don't know how he knew. That may imply something more went on. It may just mean that he knew something was different in the way he was covered and asked the brothers. We don't know. And so he said, cursed be Canaan. It's a future generation. It's not Ham, but it's his son. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem is the name, the one who destroys chaos. Let Canaan be his servant. Could speak of Israel taking over the land of Canaan. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I don't know beyond this story what Noah did with his life. He had 350 years left. There's no record. Did he do good? Did he keep continuing godliness? All the Bible says is he lived this long, and he died. I close with this. You're going to live, and you're going to die. You have a dash between two dates. It's your birth and your death, and there your story will be written. It's true for everybody. He lived and he died. She lived and died. The question is, what are you going to do with that dash? That's the time you got between two dates. Some of us have a birth date. Everybody here has a birth date and an open end. We don't know what that last date is going to be. But one thing we know, unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, we're going to live and we're going to die. What will the records of the generations of these folks say? Oh, it won't be a perfect story but hopefully it'll be a story of finding grace in God's eyes and building the arcs and being about the business of God. And let me say to you that if you got off the ark and started again and you made a mistake and you took a step back and you got drunk and you got exposed, there's still hope for you. The greatest men in the Bible, Noah was the righteous man of his time and he made a mistake. So let's be careful that when we're talking to people, We don't just say, everybody, you know, has got to be perfect as a Christian. No. If that were the case, I wouldn't be standing here. And I don't think any of us would be together. I think we, we have grace for each other. We try to be patient with each other. Yes, we encourage each other with the truth, but we remember what God has done for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's lamp. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's truth unvarnished, naked truth but it is real. Sometimes it's raw. Sometimes it's hard to hear, but it's true. It comes from you. Thank you for your grace, Lord. 
If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? Thank you for your amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But thank you that even though you save us just as we are, you don't leave us that way, and you tell us to make progress, to move forward, to become more like our Lord. And we want to do that, Lord. We want to acknowledge that we'll make mistakes sometimes, but we never want to use your grace as an excuse for sin. We want to say, Lord, that we are so grateful for that rainbow, that promise from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, and you are true to your promises. And you will wrap up the times in the splendor of your glory as you return to this world. While we wait, let us wait anticipating the fulfillment of the promise that nothing will ever separate us from your love. Height, depth, angels, principalities, powers, anything, it will never separate us from your love, which is found in Christ Jesus. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Christ, you don't know the beauty of that redemption. Trust in him right now. Run to him for refuge. Come under his cleansing blood. He died on the cross for you, that you might have life. It's something like this. If you want to pray it, pray it right now. Jesus, save me. I repent of my sin, and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to know you. Change me from the inside out. Make me a new creation in Christ. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it and I turn to you. You can start over right now. Your sin can be forgiven right now. You can have the weight off your shoulders right now. Just cry out to him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, for the wonderful Christian family that's here that gathers on these Sundays to worship you in spirit and in truth, may you help all of us, those who are in the flood, those who are in the storm, those who may be going through some difficulties, those who are reeling just from life, may you steady them. May you be the anchor of our souls, which we know you are. And may we go out this week in the beautiful sunshine of the rainbow, the beauty of the rainbow, the reminder of the covenant in the cross that covers us from A to Z, from beginning to end. We just want to say we love you, we worship you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.